Welcome to the HCI Family of Podcasts, where your source for personal, professional, and organizational growth and development. We share our own original research, explore industry trends, and interview executives and thought leaders from across the globe. Join us for practitioner-oriented content around all things leadership, HR, talent management, organizational development, and change management. Maximize your personal and organizational potential with the HCI family of podcasts. Chester Elton, welcome to the conversation today. Hey, delighted to be with you, John. It is a pleasure to be with you. You're joining us from New Jersey. I'm south of Salt Lake City in Utah. And today we're going to be talking about creating and sustaining high-performance work cultures. And this is a topic I love, something I think a lot about. I, I do a lot of research in this space and write a lot in this space as well. So this is going to be a really fun conversation. And in the pre-interview, of course, as we're getting to chat and know each other a little bit more, uh, we realize we have some connections here in Utah. And uh, it's always fun. It's a small world, right? And it's always fun to, to make those connections. As we get started, I wanted to share Chester's bio with everybody. Chester Elton is among today's most influential voices in workplace trends. He's spent more than two decades helping clients build high-performance cultures. In his work, he provides solutions for leaders looking to enhance employee engagement, teamwork, and wellness. Now, I could go on, Chester, but anything else you would like to add by way of your background or personal context before we dive on in? Yeah, um, my co-author in our, the books we've written is Adrian Gostick, who lives in Park City, Utah, not too far from you. Uh, we have written uh, 15 books together on culture and leadership, uh, several New York Times and Wall Street Journal bestsellers. And we've sold about 1.6 million copies of our books in, in 30 languages. I say all that, uh, John, because my mother's not here to brag on us. So I <laughs> throw, throw that in there. Um it has been a delight and a wonderful journey. You know, Adrian and I were, were talking that we've been doing this together for like 24 years now. Um, I think one of the reasons our, our partnership has worked so well is I live in New Jersey and he lives in Utah. We're not, we're not on top of each other. I think distance does uh, breed that kind of collegiality. And as we talk about high-performance cultures, it's been really interesting to watch the, the changes in leadership and teams and, and cultures mm particularly with the you know global uh, event of the pandemic and how that changed so many things so i'm i'm eager to to hear your views as to what you think and where things are going and see if that matches up with with our research and what we're writing about as well yeah yeah very cool it's definitely been an interesting few years hasn't it uh and right. and, and looking at how things have have been uh evolving shaped and evolved over the last few decades uh moving into you know hyper um, transition with with technology and and the global economy and things like the pandemic, all of that you know has tremendous impacts on how we engage with each other, how we do the work that we do, how work itself is designed and arranged, um, which of course is going to change what's needed. You know, if if we're talking about creating and sustaining that high performance work culture, um, let's start with something that I think has received a lot of attention in recent years because of the pandemic, and that is anxiety and the overall holistic wellness of workers. Um, how do you see that fitting in to this broader conversation around high-performance work culture? Uh, you know, on the one hand, I could see leaders thinking, oh, that's that's a their issue. That's 
our people's issue. We'll try to be supportive, but that's something they need to take care of. I'm going to work. I'm going to focus on just the workplace. Um, help us understand how those two connect and why we should be paying attention to this. Great question. Quite a long question, actually, <laughs> John. Um, Adrian and I have been writing about culture and leadership, as I mentioned, for over two, two decades now. It was Adrian's son, Anthony, that came to us and said, do you guys ever write about mental health? Well, I'm the tail end of the baby boomers. Adrian is a classic Gen Xer. And we looked at him with a, a sort of a wry smile and said, absolutely not. We, we don't talk about that kind of thing. You know, our generations are, you know, turn that frown upside down, suck it up, rub some dirt on it. You know, when I played sports as a kid, if somebody got knocked out, we all laughed. We gave him smelling salts and sent him back in. Um, not the best plan. That's just <laughs> the way we we did it, right? And he said, you know, if if you're talking about high performance cultures and and highly productive cultures and you're not talking about mental health, you need to rethink that. He says, because your generation never talks about it. My generation, it's how we start every conversation. When we say, how are you doing? What we mean is, how are you managing your anxiety, your mental health? And so it was a, a real wake up call uh, to us. We actually, Anthony is a co-author on the book. It was always been Gostick and Elton and this one was Gostick and Elton and Gostick, right? So we did. We took a look at it. And as we started to talk to a lot of um, CHROs in our network and, and leaders that we revere, absolutely, if it wasn't issue number one, it was 1A and yeah. particularly exacerbated by the by the pandemic. So let me give you some numbers and then we can talk about you know what yeah. leaders have been doing to, to manage that. Um Pre-pandemic, 18% of, of workers said that they had some kind of anxiety disorder. So call it one in five. Um, Post-pandemic, we're looking at that 2023, it, it jumped to 30%. Well, when you've got almost a third of your workforce that's that's you know suffering from an anxiety disorder. Now, everybody gets anxious. This means I'm so anxious, I can't do my job, right? Yeah. So then we broke it down and said, you know, that uh, jumped to, to 42% in workers in their 20s and, and early 30s. So now you're, you're looking at numbers that are gigantic, right? If you had 10% of your workforce that was out with COVID, that had major impact. Take a look at 42% and you're like, well, you know, we're paralyzed. Now, in great cultures, you find good people, you want to keep them. And we found that 50% of millennials and 75% of Gen Z had left a job due to mental health. So we said, okay, so wow, let's figure this out, right? So one of the questions we had was, why do you why do you leave? And we found that 90% of workers, and this is everybody, not just millennials and Gen Zs, didn't feel safe talking about it. Mm -hmm. And so why do you think that is, John? Why do people, they'll, they'll tell you that, you know, they've got the flu, they'll tell you they, you know, broke their leg skiing. Why won't they talk to their managers about mental health? Why? There's still, what, what yeah, I mean, there's still a stigma around it. And, uh, you know, if I'm wanting to move up in the company, if I'm wanting to be given more responsibilities, if I'm wanting to take on leadership roles, there's still a stigma around, can this person handle it, right? Yeah, absolutely. And that's where we really said, okay, if this is as pervasive as it is, and there's still this huge stigma, what do we do about it? And so as we looked and we talked to a lot of counselors, we talked to a lot of organizations that handle it very well, it came down to three things that first and foremost, you had to normalize the conversation. 
if 42% of your workers had broken legs, you kind of go, whoa, what's going on? You know, take everybody's skateboard away from them. Um, you would address it, right? So you've got to normalize it. Destigmatizing it is harder, right? And one of the ways that we found that was most effective was when leaders could share their stories and say, mm-hmm. by the way, you're not alone in this, right? I've been anxious as well. If you get overloaded, if it just gets to the point where you haven't been sleeping, take a day, take two days, take a deep breath and come on back. That's what I do, right? And and for a lot of leaders, that's hard because, you know, particularly new leaders, they want to be the strong leader that's got all the yeah. answers. And, you know, I can pull the 18-hour days for three weeks in a row and be like me, right? As soon as you can share a story or share a situation and, and and with the caveat, don't worry about it. It's not going to affect your bonus, your raise, your promotion, and so on. That goes a long way to destigmatizing it. And the third thing, so you've normalized it, hopefully you've destigmatized it, is this idea of empathy. So if you'd asked me five years ago, what do you think the emerging trait of leaders is going to be that's going to be the thing that they have to be able to do? Empathy would not have been in my top 20, right? Mm -hmm. Communicator, motivator, you know, visionary, whatever. Um, Now it's empathy. And and there's a difference between sympathy and empathy, right? Like sympathy is, geez, I'm really sorry that happened to you. (laughs) That must be hard. (laughs) You know, can I take you to lunch? Empathy is where, again, you're sharing your story. and, And the message that's really important when you've got, employees that are really suffering from anxiety, maybe there's some depression um, rolled into that, is that you're not alone. We're here to support you. That goes way up. When we looked at the studies that said when employees have a manager that will just listen, Mm -hmm. I don't always need the answer. Sometimes I just need somebody to listen, that they are less likely to take sick days. They are less likely uh, to quit. Uh, this idea of the empathetic listening leader has become really, really important. And why? Because you've got this big chunk of your workforce that's right smack dab in the middle of this, and you've got to address it. Does that make sense to you, John? Is this resonating? Yeah, absolutely. And I wrote an article recently um, on the topic of what I call, and others call, uh, toxic resilience. So, you know, I'm, I'm a big believer in you know, work hard, be resilient, be gritty, you know, things are tough for everybody, everyone has hard things in their lives, you know, work your way through it. And with the help of those around you get, you know, you can get past it, right? So resilience, that's important. That's an important skill and trait for people to develop. The problem is a lot of times when we talk about resilience, we talk about it really in a dehumanizing kind of way, like, you know, just pull yourself up by your bootstraps, just build, you know, I I once had someone say, you know, when, when someone was talking about depression and anxiety, this other person said to them callously, just go to Home Depot, buy some supplies, build a bridge and get over it. You know, like it's, it's a, it's a bit of a resilience mindset, right? And there's nothing wrong with resilience. I want people to learn to be resilient. I want my kids to learn to be resilient, but there's a, a point where you get to toxic resilience, where there's this expectation that if, if you're suffering, if you're dealing with depression, anxiety, any other sort of mental health challenge, that it's a you issue. It's not um, something else. It's not something that I, as a leader, should even be worried about or or brought into. And that's the problem, right? If, if you have that kind of a culture, 
um, then you have not only the, the uh, people don't feel safe to speak up, you have the huge stigma around it. And it probably will negatively impact people if they if they share about what they're feeling or what the, the, the stressors and anxieties that they're dealing with. I've known plenty of leaders where it's a reason why people don't like to say it. It's because I've known plenty of leaders who still today um, act like it's this big red flag, like, oh, mental note, never choose that person for a leadership role because they, you know, deal with anxiety. And, and the reality is we all do like we all have, you know, not all of us have clinical depression or, clin you know, clinical levels of anxiety, but we all have stuff and we all have challenges and we all go through different periods and episodes in our lives, some more challenging than others. And the reality is we're all going to be dealing with this stuff at one point or another. And so to your point, focusing on helping people understand how they can be more resilient, great, um, but we, we need to learn how to have more compassion, more empathy, um, and ultimately lead with that empathy and do it in a way where we can do it sustainably so we don't burn out because we're constantly taking the weight of everyone around us onto our shoulders, right? And that's a, that's a hard balance. In the past, yeah. you know, it wasn't even our issue. We're not going to worry about it. Now it's like you, you got to be the leader for everyone. You're almost like a therapist. And, it, you know, there's there's got to be balance there. Yes. And I, very well said, by the way, uh, the thing that I don't want the message to be is that all of a sudden we've got to be soft. We've got to be less demanding. And I guess it really doesn't matter if we get the work done or not. Right? Right. That's not the message. The message is, as you figure this out, you will be able to instill more resiliency in your people and you will get more done. And you'll get it done faster and at a higher level. And more importantly than all of that, you'll keep your really smart, good young people yes. that are looking for a reason to succeed. They're not looking for a reason to, to, to fail. You know, we looked at the generational divides and, and how we react to each other. And of course, it's very general and there's always exceptions. Yeah. What you're saying is, you know, my generation it looks at the younger generation and say, look, you're soft right? You don't want to work. Your work ethic isn't all that great. By the way, you don't dress very well either, you know, and uh, don't even think about playing your music and, in, 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 you know, when I'm around. Um, the fact is, is that this generation is incredibly talented, right? They've lived in a digital world. I didn't grow up in a digital world, right? Um, and I think with that brings all kinds of opportunity and different issues. Yeah. I, I'll relate to a really interesting experience I had just recently. So uh, I'm with this group of leaders in our, in our town and we were uh, had this retreat on how are we going to, you know, um, deal with each other and deal with uh, problems in the city and so on and so on. And, so on. and they said, we've got to show up for each other. And when we're with, when we're together, we need to focus. I said, great. I said, what would you think? And we, we meet, we meet once a month for two hours. It's not onerous, right? So what would you think if during our two hour meetings, we turned off our phones? John, you would have thought that I've asked them to give up a kidney. <laughs> you know, I mean, it was like, absolutely not. Uh, my kids are in school and I got to be, and this and this and this and this. Now, I was by far the oldest guy in the room. And I said, really, two hours. I said, you know, when Google meets in their headquarters for any meeting, you're told to turn off your phone, not silent, not vibrate. It's off. That's Google. Half of you have Google phones, right? Mm -hmm. Why can you not take two hours and disconnect? Well, I've got to be available for my kids. I got to be blah, 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 blah. 
And it occurred to me that we live in a society that is so subtly stressful. Mm-hmm. You know, I look, I've got an Apple watch as like a lot of people do. It's buzzing me all the time. Yeah. I, I, I'd like to figure out how to turn most of those off. And yet every time it buzzes, I look at it because, you know, it might be something important. You and I are, are recording this, this podcast. I turn my phone off. I can turn my phone yeah. off for 30 minutes or 90 minutes. Most people can't. I've got a dear friend. He's a partner in a, in a big firm. And I said, uh, we'll call him Jason because, you know, that's his name. And uh, I said, Jason, do you ever turn off your phone? Like ever? He goes, never. I said, what about when you're sleeping? He goes, nope. I said, so you're sleeping. It buzzes in the middle. You wake up and look at your phone. He goes, absolutely. I said, why would you do that? He says, I don't want to miss something. Now think about that. So I think as, as leaders and managers, we've got to understand that this is, these generations are connected 24 seven. Yeah. So how do we feed that in a really positive way? How do we create some boundaries in a really positive way that says, Hey, every now and again, it's okay. Like it's okay for you to not respond to emails at 1130 at night, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and I'm going to model that. I am not going to send you anything over the weekend. There's nothing that can't wait till Monday and, mm-hmm. and give people space to breathe, to recuperate and to build in some of that resiliency. The biggest thing that I would want your leaders to, to know, and we've talked about generational leaders and all these, and they've all heard it before. Great. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to get to know each and every one of the people that report to you. And I want you to know their stories. Because if I know where you come from, how you got here, what you want to accomplish while you're here, and where you want to be two, three, four years from now, that gives me your story. It allows me to understand your 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 work ethic, your educational background, your family, hopefully some of your hobbies, your passions. What is it you want to accomplish while you're here? And where do you want to go? And my job as leaders to help you get there. Well, if we've got that relationship, I can put you in a situation to succeed. I can maximize your talents. I can help you get where you want to go, which by the way, may not be with our company two to three years from now. And that's fine. And that's fine. See, we're seeing leaders, John, have gone from command and control to sort of team to, you know, the diversity inclusion, which is still very important to look, I want a coach. I want a teacher. I want a mentor. If you want to be remembered as a leader, if you want to have influence, teach. You think about the people that impacted your lives over and above your family. They were your coaches, your teachers, your mentors. You've got to change that mindset. To say, okay, how do I coach them up? Because, you know, the best coaches we ever had, the best teachers we ever had, were they demanding? Absolutely. They pushed us, right? Did we believe that they cared about us? Absolutely. Did we believe that they would cheer for us and root us on and and help us get there? You bet. You've got that relationship with your people and you've got that relationship with your leader really good things happen really fast. And for those of you that have played sports and I know sports analogies are overused. The reason is because they work right? Yep. is when you were hurt, you told your coach, they'd call a play for you or whatever. And you'd say, you know what, coach, I can barely walk. Well, same thing, right? Coach, I'm overwhelmed. I got a ton of stuff going on at home. I'm worried about my elderly parents. I, I, I need to take a day I need to, or two. 
And a good leader says, take care of yourself. We'll fill in behind you. We're cheering for you. Can I call you Monday? Absolutely. You see how the dynamic has changed dramatically? Be a teacher, yeah, and an, be a coach, and be fact, a mentor. You know, I would say I totally agree. You know, the best leaders, they're the coaches, the mentors, they're the teachers. They're the ones that are pouring into their people to develop them, to help them fulfill their potential. And, you know, I think the greatest leaders have always had those characteristics, but especially today, that's really what younger generations, younger millennials and Gen Z workers, what they really expect and desire. And in part, that's why sometimes they get a bad rap for being entitled and lazy because, you know, they, they, they really kind of expect and demand like this constant feedback and mentoring and coaching. Whereas, you know, previous generations, maybe not so much. I mean, I'm younger than you are. I, I'm I'm kind of right on the cusp of between Gen X and millennial. I'm the, the Zennial um, uh, group. And uh, I certainly remember early in my career, you know, thinking, you know, feedback was great. Coaching and mentoring was great, but it wasn't something I could expect. And it was something I had to kind of, uh, you know, just learn the ropes. And and younger people just expect to to have that, um, happen for them more naturally, consistently, right? And as a professor, you know, I'm teaching students, and I'm teaching them about good, effective organizations and good leadership and how to, to, uh, to do things effectively. And I mean, that's what I'm teaching them. I'm like, yeah, to be a good leader, you're going to have to coach and mentor. So in part, they're coming out of school with this heightened expectation of of thinking yeah that this is what we should do and they're holding us to it right and so yep. sometimes we don't like that we we want them you know we uh, older pe- older generations like myself will say well i had to just grind i had just had to get through it i i'm the, i had to pay my dues you should too and they're saying nah, never i i'm not interested in that i'm, I'm just going to go to a different company um yep. and so that's part that's part of the dynamic here uh and there are certainly i mean there's always generalizations with generational discussions, right? And certainly any generation has its lazy people and its entitled people and whatever. You know, when I look at the the students of today, you know, that I teach, I'm like, oh my gosh, these students work so freaking hard. They're they're um, working way harder than most of us students did back when I was in college, um, balancing all these different things and, you know, work and school and family life and all these different things way more than I ever had to do as a student. And, and I think about that, I'm like, they're not lazy. They, they might have different priorities. They might have different expectations, but I don't see it as lazy, you know? And so I think part of it is just reframing the conversation that we have around um, what it means to be a good leader and how to, to empower our people and how we can do that effectively. And, and ultimately, whether we like it or not, it's the reality that younger workers expect. Yes. It. And, and so and if this... we, if we want them to work for us, we're going to have to figure it out. Yeah. And, and that's your point. So good leaders, figure it out. Good coaches, figure it out. This is the talent that's available. These are the issues. Let's figure it out. The, the other thing that I want to leave with your listeners is if you truly want to be measured as a great leader, You've got to figure out how you create other great leaders. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and what does your leadership tree look like? You know, we talk about it, the coaching tree. You know, if you wanted to be a great coach, you'd, you'd become an assistant coach for, for some. Um, I've got leaders that I know that um, one of my favorites is Scott O'Neill. He was a, really an icon in sports management. And it was just well known that if you wanted to have a great career in sports, you wanted to go work for Scott O'Neill at some point. 
because he pulled together brilliant teams very quickly. He's a student of leadership. And does he lead differently now than he did 10 years ago? Absolutely he did, or he does, right? And and the point is, is this, great leaders adjust. They adjust. You know, uh, did you have to lead differently during the pandemic? Yeah. You couldn't say, hey, this is the way I lead. I've always led this way. And if you don't like it, you don't have to work for me. Great. And they found themselves very lonely very quickly, right? So figure it out. Get into that talent pool. And understand that the generations that are constantly connected, they have no downtime. There is no downtime. I have a friend who's very, very creative. And he said, you know, it's, it's a shame. Creativity, one of the elements of great creativity, I love this, by the way, is boredom. Yeah. Be bored. Go do nothing. You don't always have to be connected. You don't always have to be streaming. You don't always have to be, you know, doing whatever. You know, turn off your phone, walk out, sit on the dock and watch the sunrise for an hour. Let your mind relax and be bored. And see, great leaders and great coaches give their teams time off. Just take a break, take a breath, leave your phone. I'll tell you what's really interesting. I've developed this this habit with our family. When it's time to eat, I leave my phone in my office and say, look, I can have a meal for an hour and just focus on the family. It's okay. I give myself permission to enjoy a meal for an hour. So I guess, you know, as we're wrapping up, um, mental health and anxiety in the workplace, if it's not the number one issue in a lot of organizations, it's, it's 1A. And the good leaders figure it out. If you can normalize the conversation, destigmatize and empathize, and if you know your people's stories and be excited about this, this talent and where they're going, you're, you're going to be fine. You're going to have lots of people want to work for you. And as we've looked at productivity and innovation, it all goes up when people feel safe to talk about mental health, when you've got things in place to help people with mental health, not just talking to your leader. You know, I I was at a wonderful dinner. um, The CHRO of MasterCard was there. They've got a program where you can certify to be a mental health champion. Mm. And they have over 500 employees that volunteered to go through the training. They're available at all different levels of the organization. You can call them anytime. Who doesn't want to work for those guys? (laughs) You know what I mean? That's incredible. They got it. They put it where they're, they put their money where their mouth is. And they're getting incredible results and incredible people joining their team. So it can be done. Don't despair, right? Figure it out, move forward. It's a better way to lead. It's a better way to teach. And the ripple effect of those great leaders is beyond the workplace, into people's families, into their communities. Figure it out. And and by the way, the best way to figure it out, by anxiety at work. This great book, (laughs) (laughs) we wrote, it's available to find bookstores everywhere. Eight ways to to deal with anxiety in the workplace. And they're they're simple, easy to understand, hard to implement. Absolutely. Give you the data, give you the tools. Uh, We're very passionate about giving people ways to make their workplaces better. And that's my sermon. I'm sticking to it, John. (laughs) (laughs) Very well said, Chester. Thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure. I encourage the audience to reach out, get connected, find out more about what Chester can do for you. Check out the book. And as always, I hope everyone can stay healthy and safe, that you can find meaning and purpose at work each and every day. And I hope you all have a great week.
Thanks for joining us for this episode of the podcast. We hope you stay healthy and safe and please join us again soon.